Today we get the, uh, uh, the joy, uh, for me, of continuing on our Christmas series, Christmas at Covenant. Uh, we named it as such for multiple reasons, one of which is to remind you that Christmas Eve is at Covenant Church, and so on Christmas Eve you'll know where to go. But um, Christmas at Covenant means a lot of things, and what we've done this year is we've sort of been uh, pulling strings on the Christmas story and figuring out some of these little lessons that are embedded in there that sometimes we miss as we go along. I've had multiple people in the first few weeks of this, I should mention this out loud, say, have you read the book Hidden Christmas? Tim Keller wrote a book a couple of years ago called Hidden Christmas. And I said, actually, I did. I read it a year or two ago. And a few people have gone, some of this stuff sounds like some of the stuff that he said. And I said, well, that makes sense because I read it. And so in my subconscious. So if you haven't read Hidden Christmas, um, you might want to pick it up. It's really fantastic. If you have read it and some of this stuff sounds familiar, we can send Tim Keller a thank you note together. So I just want to say that out loud. What we're going to talk about today is the disruption of Christmas. What is really, I think, a welcome disruption, but doesn't always feel that way. Uh, Christmas is a disruptive season. I meet with this group of uh, guys, like a discipleship group, on Tuesday mornings real early, and we go and we have coffee and we wrestle through some of life together. And um, we were talking recently, right before the Christmas season started, and, and one of the guys in our group is a little younger than the others, um, doesn't have kids yet. And so we're, we're kind of like working through like, why are, why are we having to get ramped up for Christmas? We're kind of giving each other a pep talk, and, and he's looking at us, um, the younger one, like, guys, what is the big deal about Christmas? This is easy. You go have some ham at this house, you open a present at that house. This, what, you guys have, like, PTSD. And it occurred to me as, as we had explained it, and he's kind of like, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. Um, we were, like, talking about how to survive. It was as if we were creating, like, this tactical assault on the Bin Laden compound, except it was... It was about Christmas, and so, you know, somebody's like, communication is key, okay? You've got to keep me in your focus, and then the other one is going, keep your expectations in check and communicate expectations with everybody you know because it gets a little wild. I, I think I may have said that you need to know your targets and cut your losses. Um, <laughs> be ready to pull out when the shrapnel starts flying. It got a little weird during the hostage negotiation tactics part, um, but you haven't met my Aunt Sally, so that's all you got to know. Sorry, Aunt Sally. Uh, we thought we were being a little dramatic. After all, he had said, you know, this guys, this is a little intense. I said, maybe you're right. Maybe we're being a little dramatic. Maybe we'll all just enjoy it. And then uh, yesterday I found myself in a, a certain big box national electronic retailer. And I realized this was all too real. This was absolutely a seal raid. My wife and I had like an hour. Our kids had a, a dance rehearsal followed by a dance recital. And we had an hour in between in Toledo. And so we were trying to get a couple things done. You know that, how are we going to buy stuff for the kids when the kids aren't around and Everything is on Amazon now, so then it ships to the house, and the kids get the box, and that doesn't work. And so we had this plan, and so we went to a certain national electronics re retailer that I haven't been to in, I don't know, whenever Amazon came out. And so uh, we walk in, and this place, it was absolutely a seal raid. And so I'm like, look, we have like 11 minutes. We have a major purchase here. It's a lot of complicated transactions that are about to happen. You find the guy. And so she goes over, and she finds the guy. And I'm like, that's the guy. Get that guy. She goes over, she goes, hey, can you help us? And I'm walking over, like, ready to pounce and bring him back over to where we need him to be. And he goes, well, actually, I'm, I'm kind of working with that guy over there in that aisle. I'm, I'm helping him. He's about to finish his transaction. And I'm like, oh, that guy right there, sniper team, go. You know, and so we're, we got rid of that guy, and then we pulled this guy over, and he starts helping us. And, and like, 47 seconds later, he was kind of like in a blaze of glory giving us a receipt. And I, we said, thank you so much. You don't know how well you did. And he's like, I don't know what just happened. And it was a lot. But it really, to me, felt like the, the perfect um, kind of encapsulation of the season where everything is this tactical maneuver to get through, get what I need, get on to the next thing. Christmas is disruptive. Rhythms are broken. Budgets get busted. 
dysfunctional families fake being functional just a little bit longer? Let the wine flow, they say. Christmas leaves us in foreign territory, and what happens is the loss of control contributes to what really is a feeling of high anxiety in a lot of people. And instead of running from that, I actually want to lean into that. I think that's the beautiful metaphor today, this whole incursion. And so let's read the text of the Bible, and I'll explain what that means later. So in Matthew chapter 2, the Bible says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And the prophet wrote, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you, out of you, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Not what he was intended. So the Magi go, they go to see Jesus. They go and they worship him. And they're warned in a dream in the midst of this. So the Magi are warned not to tell Herod what's happening because Herod does not mean good things for Jesus. Simultaneously, as, as they're getting this dream, Joseph is warned, warned in another dream that Herod will be coming to kill Jesus. And, and Joseph is actually told to take Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt. So we pick up in verse 16. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, they took a different route home so as not to have to tell him, he was furious. He gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity and those who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So then he figures out, okay, the baby had to be born around this time somewhere, so anyone two and under, just kill all the boys. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to, uh, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, verse 20, and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are now dead. So he got up, and he took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled that which was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, that's a lot. So we walk back to the first Christmas, and what we see immediately as we, as we kind of take a, a zoomed-out view of the story is we see deep disruption at every turn. There's deep disruption at every turn, and the songs we sing are all sweet and sentimental, and, and then we hear that Joseph had this dream, and then Mary was visited by an angel, and all these kind of things are happening. And if we're not careful, we think of them all in this saccharine sort of sweet way. There's angels, and there's dreams, and people are just kind of following their heart. And, and that's a... a fair way to look at it, except that I think it's probably wrong. You ever had a dream that was so realistic that it caused you to move your family? Like literally just pick up and move the next day? It doesn't, it doesn't sound like a real like warm, fuzzy time to me. It was 40 plus miles to get out of Herod's jurisdiction. It was over 400 miles to get into the proper Egyptian land, which is to say that just to get out of Herod's reach, Joseph would have had to pick up his family the next day with, uh, with young child, and he would have had to walk 40 miles to, like, Port Clinton, shortest distance possible. It's entirely possible, we don't know for sure, that he went all the way to actual um, real Egypt, not just Egyptian-held territory, but he went to actual Egypt, which is being like walking to Syracuse, New York, because of a dream. Does that sound like a dream or a nightmare? Because in order to do something like that, I would have had to have a pretty real nightmare. 
Not only does Joseph get this miracle baby, who might be the Messiah, which is pretty confusing and sort of disrupting, but then they get the joy, Mary does, of birthing him in a barnyard, and then a cross-desert move not long after that. And so we can sing great news in the town of David and feel good about it, because we know the end of the story, but for them, this is disruptive. Here's what we know to be true. When Jesus arrives in a life, disruption always ensues. When Jesus arrives in a life, disruption always ensues. This is true not only for Mary and Joseph, but for us as well. And so we'll get to that. But we notice something else. When Jesus arrives, it threatens the existing power in uh, the place. Herod's life seemed disrupted as well. Herod panics. This is the king. This is the guy with all the power there is. And he hears the rumor of a Messiah being born, the one who was waited on, the one who the prophet spoke about. And he fears losing all the control and the power that he's brought up. And so literally has his people go and kill every baby under two years old, every male, in order to maintain his control and to maintain his power. Because if Jesus is worshipped as a new king, if it's real, if Jesus is really the king, then what that means is whoever's on the throne right now is no longer the king. This is really familiar to me. I remember when Jesus showed up in my life. It disrupted everything. Usually what happens when Jesus shows up in a life uh, in modern times is we give away bits of power to King Jesus. I'll give you this habit and that other thing over there and this problem area you can have and maybe my marriage today, but if it gets better, I'll take it back. And what we do is we end up giving Jesus bits of power, but we want to actually maintain overall control. Herod didn't even give him a little bit. Herod just said, I need control. But what we know to be true in our own lives is you can't have Jesus, you can't have a king unless he gets the throne. You can't have a king unless he gets the throne. So you can't call Jesus your king and keep your other kings. You can't call Jesus your king and keep your idols. You can't keep some of the power and some of the control. You have to give it all away. He's either king or he's not. So when Jesus shows up in the Christmas season, when Jesus shows up in our lives, what happens is is we, we end up losing control. Jesus changes everything. And so when Jesus shows up in our lives, the first things to go, the first things we kind of wrestle with are our habits and our vices and those things we kind of wish we didn't have. And most of them seem to mellow over time anyway. And so there's a lot of people in the room that have been following Jesus for years now. And you're like, yeah, that thing I struggled with in my teens, my 20s, uh, my early 30s, that thing I struggled with, I don't really struggle with that anymore. That's kind of mellowed. And so either we got that in check, like we submitted that to Jesus and it's just, it's it's in, in our past now. Or something else has happened. Because we can delude ourselves into thinking that we've given control to Jesus, but sometimes things just fade naturally. Like the adolescent lust fades over time. That's a natural kind of thing that happens. But that that desire for control or desire to possess the things we want, that thing doesn't fade. It just is manifested in different ways. And so we can be tricked into thinking that because a habit or because a thought life, because that's gone, that maybe we've got this. And yet if we look at the evidence of our lives, sometimes we see that we never actually gave up control over those things. Someone you know, maybe it's someone in the mirror, has sharp anger. Someone struggles with anger, struggles with, you know, real biting, short fuse, and you go, well, over time, that's actually gotten better. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's because it was submitted to Christ, and so Jesus has worked on that stuff, and the Holy Spirit is really helping us away from the sin area of our life. But sometimes... Sometimes our, our, our anger just mellows, and the critical spirit is still in there. That critical spirit still lingers, and it's seen in different ways, but it's still there, and we go, maybe we never gave up control of that thing. The question would be, 
when do you find yourself struggling in sin? And the answer, a lot of times, is we find ourselves struggling in sin when control is in short supply. That it's a really good diagnostic to say, where do I struggle in sin? And it's often places that I lack control. It's often places that I can't get what I want when I want it. So Christmas disruption frustrates because it steals control. This whole season of chaos, this season of fighting with somebody at Best Buy, this, this whole thing is a whole issue because it steals my control. And so I feel frustrated. It steals my calendar. It, steal, it steals everything. Jesus' arrival in our lives is no different. So to hold on to Jesus is to let go of lesser things. And every time we encounter that, this is a great season to remember that. When we have to take hold of Jesus, it requires us to let go of the other things. Joseph and Mary had to let go of pride. They had to let go of what people in the community thought of them. Oh, the virgin who somehow miraculously got pregnant. I'm sure that story was really believable. Or Joseph who happened to be with the virgin who miraculously got pregnant. No big deal, Joseph, it wasn't you. So they let go of their pride, they let go of their reputations, they let go of the community perception, they really let all of that die. They had to let go of all these lesser things in order to hold on to Jesus. I laugh when I look at my own life at the number of things I had to let go of, the number of things I lost. I told you about this wedding, I've mentioned it a couple of times in D.C., and people are like, oh, you go to a lot of weddings? Like, you know, it's a thing. And I said, not really. And they say, well, why not? And I said, well... Um, I kind of met Jesus at 16 years old, but I didn't really give up control of my life until 23, 24. And um, you can count the number of friends I have from the first 25 years of my life on um, one finger, not one hand. Because all of the things that I was doing, all the things I was into, all the relationships I was a part of, all the, all the habits and the vices and all that stuff was tied up, and I had to let all of it go. And so people go, oh, you got your high school reunion, your 20th, it's coming up. I'm like, well... I don't think I'm going to go. Well, why not? Because I haven't talked to those people in 20 years. And it isn't that I'm better than them. It isn't that it was that Jesus came hold and I had to let go of all these lesser things. And so these relationships began to fall by the wayside and these old habits began to drop away. And it was only because Jesus came in and disrupted the trajectory of my life. Another thing that happened to me, which I think happens to everybody in some way, shape, or form, maybe not geographically, but the arrival of Jesus means a major move is coming. For, for Mary and Joseph, a major move was coming. Jesus showed up, and they had a, a geographical move to make. They had to get out of Herod's territory. For me, Jesus showed up, and, and it wasn't until I'd moved 10,000 miles that God kind of plucked me out into exile and said, let me get you away from the threats that you've been facing. It was the only way to help me understand. I had to go into exile myself. Everybody has some version of that story. For a lot of us, it isn't geographic. Some of us, it is. When Jesus moves into our hearts, Jesus actually moves to change our lives. And so it changes the way we look at things. It changes the way that we move about the world. It changes our relationships. It changes our hearts, our priorities, our dreams, our desires. All of these things begin to be morphed by Christ. And so it moves us from where we were into some whole other place. Jesus will move you to do things you've never done, to go places you've never been, and chase desires you've never had. There's a real mark as somebody who's been really captured by Christ, who's given up the, the kingship of their life to Jesus, is you begin to do things you can't really explain even to yourself. And you have desires that you're not really sure how to explain to others. So maybe that's my hope and prayer, is that every time your life is disrupted, that in the, in the midst of our frustration, in the lack of control in the season to come, and the awkwardness that, that is brought by, by family, by your upside-down schedule, 
and the travel and the occasional despair of hearing All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey for the 73rd time this year. And the chaos and the carnage and the roar of disruption that maybe you hear the whisper that says, in Jesus, disruption is actually our salvation. In a season of high disruption, where we run into one thing after another that just isn't what we had planned for ourselves for that day, isn't what we wanted for that week, it's not how I would have set that up, I, I have a routine. Eleven months a year, I have a really nice routine, and, and I didn't realize quite how controlling I was with my routine, and then December comes, and the whole thing gets blown up. I, I went back six days just to say, like, well, is it that big? Am I making too much of this? And I was like, no, we had a recital on Monday, a Christmas party on Wednesday, another Christmas party Thursday, another Christmas party Friday, another recital on Saturday. That was yesterday. Today we have three recitals. That's today. And then next week we have a Christmas party on Wednesday. So in like a nine-day span, okay. And in between, we're trying to figure out how to do real life at the same time. And you wonder why you gain pounds during the, the Christmas season. It's like, who's, who's doing anything right? Like, I don't have time to cook, much less cook something. Just, I had Chick-fil-A like nine times yesterday. <laughs> I think I'm joking. That's good. Keep thinking, though. Got the 30-piece nugget meal for lunch. Didn't know that was a thing. Disruption is the path to salvation. We hate it. We hate the disruption. We hate the chaos. We hate the interruption in our lives because we know the way that we're going to do stuff. But the reality of disruption is it is the path to salvation. We, we were yet sinners, the Bible says. While we were enemies of God, while we were opposed to him, while we were worshiping lesser kings, chasing every idol imaginable, Jesus broke down the door of our hearts. Jesus crashes in, disrupts the narrative, to stretch my metaphor a little too far, really, Jesus performs this tactical assault on our lives. And the smoke grenade goes off and the gunfire starts and we don't know where we are or how we got there. We lose control in that moment. When Jesus really disrupts a life, when he really invades a life, we don't know how we got there, but we're somewhere else entirely. And what we do is we lose our old self in the fog of that disruption, in the fog of that invasion by Christ. We lose our old self. And one day you wake up and you're like, gosh, I was a different person back then. And other people will tell you that. You go, I don't know what to do with that. When somebody goes, hey, you were different. And you're like, that kind of feels like a, that kind of feels like not so much of a compliment. I remember not long after I'd kind of finally figured some of this out and I'd finally released some of these big things in my life. I have a long way to go still. And yet I remember there was a time when even my siblings would, they, they pulled me aside one holiday season because they knew the right time to do it. I said, let's add some chaos to your life. And they said, hey, we, we liked you more before. I was like, you, you know what happened, right? Like, Jesus happened. This is a good thing, right? You guys like Jesus. I like, it's a good thing. They're like, yeah, but you used to be funnier. And I was like, you mean like meaner? And they were like, yeah, you were really funny, mean that way. But you could make fun of anybody. And I was like, it doesn't really feel like the thing I'm supposed to be doing anymore. Like, well... We used to like you better. We just wanted you to know that. And I was like, all right, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Jesus' glorious disruption in our lives opens our eyes. Because in the past, we lived with false kings. We lived with a Herod in our own life. We lived with something on the throne that had no business being there. 
And, and if, we're, if we're honest about looking back at our own lives, if we're honest at looking back at, at our pre-Jesus days, or even today when we go, you know what, I'm not totally sure I actually ever gave up control. When we're honest about that, what we realize is we not only have a false king, but we have a false savior, and most of the times it's us on both sides. That I keep myself on the throne because what I need most is what matters most, and what I want to do is what matters most, and what I desire is what matters most. But then I'm also my own savior because when I need help, who do I turn to but more of me? And we only stumble across that so many times before we realize it's not working, but we don't have a better plan. And so when Jesus crashes into the life, Jesus actually goes, I'm not only going to be your new king, but your new savior. I'm both. And so faith is actually handing him control because he's the only one that can handle it. Same is true in this season if we have eyes to see it. Found myself gripping the wheel a little tighter than normal, being a little less sweet to my spouse than normal as I'm fighting through Franklin Park Mall traffic, which is bad on a Tuesday in March, much less on a Saturday in December. So between rehearsals and recitals and between the marital skirmish that I created and between all these things, it kind of clicked. And Steph says, what are you preaching on tomorrow? Which is a great question to ask and your husband's not quite doing the right thing, but he has to preach the next day. forgiveness. <laughs> um, so I'm preaching that Jesus is this great disruption and every holiday is a disruption and every disruption is an opportunity and maybe we should seize it and not be the same as we were last year at this time. How's that going for you? She didn't have to say that. Every traffic jam and every argument and every crying child up past their bedtime and over-sugared, every single one of these things is an invitation. And it's an invitation to two different paths, and it's up to us which we take. So you can take the path of greater frustration, which is attempting against all odds to hold on to control of some sort. I can try and claw and try to keep as much as I can, and that's a great invitation to frustration. Or it's an opportunity and an invitation into greater faith. That we can look at the disruption as an opportunity to say, Lord, man, I gave up the control of this thing long ago. And so it's all yours. The disruption can remind us to give back control to God. When we're frustrated with our lack of control, we can be reminded that disruption saved us in the first place. That our best attempt at controlling our own lives had us on the highway to hell. And that Jesus grabbed the reins of our life and now we live free and heaven bound. And sometimes we forget. Because in the midst of the frustration, that's not the first thing I think of. I'm gripping the steering wheel harder, not singing Jesus take the wheel. It's not in me. That no matter how angry the other customers are, no matter how snappy you've been to your family, no matter how many late nights or early mornings or late flights or whatever, our opportunity this Christmas is to embrace the disruption of the season. To embrace the deep disruption, and the chaos. And maybe, while we're thinking about it, in that quiet moment that you steal away when you wash your hands for four or five times in the bathroom because you just don't want to go back out to the chaos, or if you're like me, you say, do you need anything from the garage? I'll be there for an hour. Maybe during the midst of the disruption this year, we invite Jesus to disrupt our lives again. And we begin to ask ourselves questions in the, in the silence of the real nights that are in front of us. We ask if there's any old kings that have slipped back onto the throne or any old habits that have snuck back into our lives. Any old hopes or dreams or priorities that have, again, taken over what was rightfully supposed to be different. 
And so my prayer for us is that we would be a truly disrupted people. That we would be forever changed by the original disruption of Jesus in our lives, and yet we would go on and be disrupted over and over and over again, and that we would see this season as a glorious reminder of a glorious disruption, a divine interruption into our lives. The song goes, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. We are exiled no more, because he came down, born in the barnyard, because he came down to be part of the interruption and the disruption of eternity. That you and I are now welcomed home to God, that we are brought into true family in Jesus. And so may the disruption of the season be with you in great joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you certainly create disruption. God, remind us that in our moments where uh, we think that you're an addition to our life. That uh, you're some sort of accessory or uh, a nice self-help thought. But if we add you to our own kingship, if we add you to our own throne, that maybe you'll make things better. Father, thank you that you have no interest in making things better, but that you are interested in making things new. Thank you for creating newness in us through Jesus. God, I pray that as we navigate a season where chaos reigns and disruption is everywhere, God, when frustration is our natural inclination so many times, Father, that you would drive us into greater faith instead. That we would use a season like this and it would actually be a joy and a blessing. That it would remind us that the answer to all of life's issues, the answer to all of our internal struggle, the answer to every broken relationship really is just you. So Father, may we lean into you and as we do so, God, would you embrace us, remind us of who you are, and that we are your children. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Continue to worship today, and we do so through communion.